If Christ is king, how should the Christian consider the kingdoms of this world? What does the Bible teach us about human authority and what it means to love our neighbors and our enemies? Before we render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, let's know what it means to render unto God what is God's. This is the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, the modern prophetic voice against war and empire. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. This week and every week on Biblical Anarchy, we seek to live counterculture to the empire of man and to instead seek the kingdom of God by unpacking what the Bible teaches about government, authority, and human relationships. I am your host, Jacob Daniel. For today's episode, we have a special guest, Dave Smith, who is a comedian, libertarian pundit, frequent guest on Fox Business, The Joe Rogan Experience, and other popular shows and podcasts. Actually, I just caught your uh, appearance on uh, Russell Brand's podcast, which was pretty cool. I've been following him. He's been getting just more and more based as time goes on. So that was cool to see you finally uh, have a conversation with him. But Dave be joining me today to have a discussion about how the state has led us astray from God, from truth, from freedom, and how we can push back against the state through how we raise our children and the next generation. So Dave, welcome to the show and uh, thanks for being here. How you doing? I'm doing good, Jacob. It's really good to talk to you. I apologize. We uh, we were supposed to do this a while ago, and and I pushed it back, but I, I'm very happy to be with you tonight. Oh, it's all good. It's actually pretty good timing, because I just had Michael Heiss on last week, and now I'm having you, and then I'm having Angela, so I'm just having like a little libertarian Mises Caucus trifecta here. <laughs> so... <laughs> the power gang of the Mises Caucus. Right, yes. yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> Dave, the walls of libertarian podcasting are demanding that I ask you to share once again how you became a libertarian. I mean, in all seriousness, like I feel like a lot of people who watch me probably know who you are. But just for those who don't, if you could just do like a little introduction, how you became a libertarian, but also if you could go back into again sort of your testimony and experience into how you went from someone who was more of like an agnostic atheist type into believing in God because I think it's a really powerful story, and every time you tell it, I think there's going to be someone who hasn't heard it before, and it's going to be really encouraging to them. Okay, so I could do both real quick. In a way, and I've never really, I don't know if I've ever exactly thought about it like this, but when you ask those questions back to back, I do think there's probably, there's a little bit of a connection between both of them, in a sense. So I became a libertarian. I was first introduced to the ideas, I guess it was in late 2007, or the famous Ron Paul Giuliani moment which was an incredible moment for, you know, I'm, I'm sure most people listening know it. If you don't know it, go Google Ron Paul, Rudy Giuliani, and you can see it's, there's this moment in the presidential primary debates where Ron Paul and Rudy Giuliani get into this fight about what caused the attacks of September 11th, 2001. And Ron Paul, even though he's getting booed out of the arena, just lays the smack down on Rudy Giuliani and just demonstrates how much more he understands about history and the actual causes of terrorism and the consequences of American foreign policy and all this stuff. And I watched it. I was kind of like a left-leaning kid. I mean, I was born in 83, so I was, what, 23, 24, something like that. And it blew me away. And I wanted to know a lot more about that guy. And there was something really interesting about that moment that was almost kind of like a portal into a whole nother world. 
And for people who are like around my age, I'm going to be 40 soon. If you have like a vivid memory of the George W. Bush years, the culture at the time was so... It's hard to overstate how much the post 9-11 culture was like American-centric and totally this like nationalist, militarist, you're either with us or you're with the terrorists worldview. And in a way, what Ron Paul did was he was giving you this kind of ability to interact with this whole other perspective, which was the perspective outside of the American empire. Right. Not just how this looks on the inside, but like how this is perceived by the people on the receiving end of the American empire. And he was going, hey, I mean, can't we kind of understand that if we put the shoe on the other foot, you would kind of get where you might be a little bit upset too. And it was immediately met with hysteria all around. You're justifying 9-11. You're saying we invited the attacks of 9-11 when the point he's making is just so undeniable. That, you know, you murder people and their children and their families, that tends to make their friends hate you. Like, it's a pretty basic human thing. (laughs) Shocker. Right. (laughs) So that was my spark. And then I was really interested. And I was like, well, I want to learn more about this guy. And then I started hearing him talking about like pure, laissez-faire, free market capitalism and things like this, which I was very skeptical of. But I kind of felt this need to look into it more to disprove it, like to debunk it. And I just started getting kind of like obsessively looking into all of the literature in an attempt to debunk it. And eventually I was converted. And I was just like, I actually, this is just a superior argument to anything I've heard on the other side. And it all started making more and more sense. I found very shortly after that, I found guys like Tom Woods and Peter Schiff. Shortly after that, I found Murray Rothbard. And it was over from there. Once I found Rothbard, I was just like, this guy's just blew me away. And so that's how I became a libertarian. In a way, I think to some degree, the connection I was making, like, I don't know how much I've really thought about this before, but the connection to my mind to finding God was kind of that, I think for me, and and probably a lot of people around my age and who grew up in my generation, our generation, probably can relate to this, but I grew up in a very secular world. And I'm not saying necessarily that your family was secular or that you grew up not religious, but the world you grew up in was a very secular world. And there was really nothing ever instilled in me as a kid coming up that was like deep-rooted meaning. I mean, my mother certainly, she was a really good mother, really good woman. I didn't have a father present in my life, but she certainly tried to instill in me to be a good person. But really life wasn't centered around anything. Like as a kid growing up, it was kind of like, I don't know, you want to finish your homework so you can play video games or something like that. You know, like you want to go have fun. I want to go play basketball. And so I guess I got to not get kicked out of school so I can be on the basketball team. That was kind of like my school experience was like, let me not cut enough school so that I don't get kicked off the basketball team was how I existed through school for the most part. And I think when I was first introduced to libertarianism, one of the things that really grabbed me about it was it was I was kind of caring about something bigger than myself. There was kind of like a bigger issue. There was something wrong happening in the world. And I wanted to be against that and support what was right in the world. And so in a sense, in hindsight, I do think that in some ways filled a gap that was missing from my life and maybe not in the most healthy way. Anyway, so how I went from being an agnostic to believing in God was having my daughter. The first time I had a child, my daughter, that day, 
really changed me. And it was in the middle of my wife's delivery or in the middle of her labor, I should say, where I just started. There were a few things that happened. My wife had a very difficult delivery and I was so excited. My wife's like the best person I know. I was so thrilled that we were starting this family together. We were so excited to have our first kid. And in the hospital, it was actually as they were giving her the epidural. It was even before any of the complications started. But they asked me to leave the room because, you know, like that's, I don't know what that anesthesiologist at Lenox Hill Hospital likes to do, like get the dad out of the way. Because, you know, giving an epidural, even though it's very routine for them, it's kind of dangerous. And if they flinch a little bit, you might end up paralyzed or something like that. And I was out in the hallway and it started to dawn on me for the first time that like I could lose my wife. I could lose our baby. I could walk out of here with nothing. And it's not guaranteed to me that I have this family that I'm so excited to have. And I felt so powerless. And I just immediately, even though I wasn't a religious person at the time, I immediately just started praying to God. And I had this moment where I was like praying to God and I was not even just praying to God, but like negotiating with God. You know, like I was like, listen, if you, if like, dear God, please take care of my wife and my baby girl. And if you do that, I promise X, Y, Z. And, and like all the things I was promising was just like, I'll be a better person. I'll be, I'll be a great father. I'll be better than my wife. I'll be better than my kids. I'll be better than my friends. I'll do all of this. But, you know, I know I have, you know, like all the areas in life that you have to improve on started like flooding right into my brain. I go, okay, I know I got to get better at this. I know I got to get better at that. And anyway, after that, there were a lot more complications throughout the pregnancy. Luckily, everyone was fine. My wife and my daughter were all okay. But in the coming days after that, while I'm also now like ecstatic because I have this beautiful baby girl and my wife's okay and everything's fine, I just couldn't stop thinking about that, you know? And I was having this moment like, wow, what was that? Like, what the heck was that that just happened? You know, that to me, it was like really profound. It was really crazy that somebody who wasn't a devout religious person, immediately when, let's say, the shit hit the fan, I just like instinctively, it was in me that I wanted to talk to God. And I wasn't like, there was no question whether God was real. It was like, I'm talking to someone. In the same way I'm talking to you right now, and I don't have a question whether you're real or not. And not only did I know God was real, I knew what he wanted from me. Like I knew, you know what I mean? Like it was just like yeah. this very powerful thing that like, it was like, no, that was a real moment. And then it was something I could just never shake. It was like, okay, a light's been opened up for me. I see something now that I didn't see before. And since then, in the years to come, I've been, you know, I've had a lot of great things happen to me in the last four and a half years since then. But I've also had a lot of really challenging things happen. And I've, you know, after all of it, I look back and it's hard for me to believe that I ever didn't believe in God, you know? And so it's, I guess that would be, I don't know, that's kind of the short version of it. Right. No, and I'll have links in the show notes here to the previous appearance you did on my old podcast, where I think you went into a more detailed version, but I love hearing your testimony. I love giving you the opportunity to share it. And I remember, so when I saw you at in Perryville, Maryland, a couple months ago, someone in the audience asked you about it and you shared a bit about it then too, which was really cool. And she also asked you where you got your sense of morality from. And I, I loved your answer, which if I remember correctly, you said like it essentially boils down to like realizing that morality just comes from God and that if atheists really took the time, like if they were able to be completely transparent to themselves and sort of like scratch past the surface of where they get their morality come from, 
that they realize that they essentially get it from God or they get it from a belief in God and a belief in a moral universe or something like that. So with that out of the way, I think it's a good foundation to sort of like go into a couple things that I really wanted to get you on the show to talk about and get your perspective on. And, you know, we were looking at our society today. I feel that we're just really off the mark of where God wants us to be. I mean, it reminds me a lot, like, I feel like where we are right now, like in our society, whether it's America or the West or however you want to label it, I think we're a little reminiscent of Israel, like in the Old Testament, when they've completely fallen away from God. Everything's just gone completely to hell. They're just giving into all their different hedonistic pleasures, worshiping idols and all that. And then it's just like they're invaded by a foreign nation and that's how they eventually repent. Right now, it doesn't, we're not really being invaded by a foreign nation. We're being invaded by this like weird, secular, woke culture that's taking over everything and this big push towards globalism. And our country is the one that's really like doing all the military invading and instigating of violence and all that. And when I caught your comedy show, which was one of the first times I really like, I'd watched some of your comedy specials online, but I'd never been to one of your shows. And the theme of your entire show was basically just like, we live in an upside down world. And, you know, like the fact that Matt Walsh has a documentary called What is a Woman? And that, like, you could have a documentary about that and it's like people want to watch it or people are upset by it. Like, that's just whatever your opinion on Matt Walsh is. Like, that is a clear marker of like where we are at as a society, I think. So, my question for you is like, would you agree with the idea that basically we are where we are today because a large percentage of society has rejected God and rejected the truths that come from being grounded in a belief in God and objective truth and morality? And like, obviously, there's more to it than that. Like we can, as libertarians, look at like, oh, you know, the Federal Reserve is responsible for this and, you know, NATO is responsible for that. But like, those are sort of like the surface level things. And I feel like underneath of it, it is sort of like, Not that when everyone believed in God, everything was perfect, but just that how we've gotten to the point we're at today at least has something to do with that sort of fundamental shift in our society. Yeah, I mean, I I think absolutely. To me, there's no question that the two things are heavily correlated. And also there's a causal link there. By the way, the Matt Walsh documentary is so fascinating, not even necessarily because whether you agree with Matt Walsh's politics or not, or even the fact that he's answering such a simple question and that's triggering people. The thing that's so interesting about it is that he's interviewing supposed experts in the field, people with PhDs, and they can't answer the question. Right. Like, no one can. They're unwilling or unable to do so. It's like, and look, I think, and I've talked about this a lot for the last few years, but I think that, um, you know the meme... It's one of the best memes I've ever seen. But you know the template for the meme where it's like the train busting through? Like someone says something and then there's like a train busting through. And there's like someone saying, I forget exactly how it goes, but it's something like, they're like, after we get rid of religion, we can usher in an age of rational discourse where people will only rely on logic and reason. And then the train busting through just says pregnant men. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like, yeah. And to, to me, it's like there's nothing that's ever like summed it up better than that. Where the flaw in atheism, okay, there's several flaws in atheism, like logically and spiritually. But the to me, almost like the most practical flaw, the flaw in atheism, even from an atheistic point of view, 
is that atheism doesn't really exist. Hmm. It's not a real yeah. thing. And there, I don't know, perhaps there's some exception to that, and there's some individual who's truly an atheist, but we'd have to really get into like the definition of what a religion is and what the atheist critiques of a religion are, and then go, okay, let's look at every person and tell me they don't have anything like that. You know, like I know atheist Democrats who blindly support the Democratic Party. And then they blindly root for their, whoever their preferred like sports team is. And you're like, so wait a minute. So tell me again, what's it, what exactly is the difference? Like from the atheist perspective, where you go, oh, you just take this as an article of faith and it's just about these traditions and customs and none of this is real. And you're like, oh, okay, but you just support Not to the mention Democrats. The, right. You support Not this to, thing called government, which doesn't really exist. It's just an artificial social construct and there's just people and buildings and men with guns. None of that's real. It's just something you believe in. And like you root for your football team, you go and we all wear the same color shirt and then you freak out when they go. Like ex explain to me exactly in what substantial way this is different from a religion. So the greatest flaw in all of these like really brilliant, in some cases, atheist thinkers, whether it's Ayn Rand or Christopher Hitchens or whoever, is they go, well, look, religion is based off faith and superstition and all of this stuff, which is true. Like, I'm not denying that. But the flaw is that they almost like, they have this assumption, which is like almost just taken as a given and isn't really examined as much, that if we got rid of that, what will then fill the void is rationality. Right. But all of the empirical evidence points to the fact that as soon as you get rid of that, what fills the void is just another religion. And unlike a religion like, say, Christianity or even Judaism or Islam or something, like what fills the void is something that hasn't been tested for thousands of years right. and doesn't have all of this kind of like structure built into it. What fills the void is gender ideology. I mean, that right, is right. a religion <laughs> as much as anything in the world is a religion. And that's, well, a new that's dogma. what Matt Walsh exposes, that it's a religion to these yeah. people. When he asks, what is a woman? Basically, they may not say it this way, but everyone's reaction is, you're committing blasphemy. You're not allowed to ask that question. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, and the, I remember in a conversation that like, it was, I think it was Jordan Peterson, Douglas Murray, and Sam Harris when they were talking about like religion and like Douglas Murray, who isn't by any means like a religious person, was saying that the absence of, or the decrease of Christianity in society wasn't good because the dogmas that pop up in the new secular religion are a lot worse than the old dogmas that like of like the Catholic church or Protestant churches or whatever. He's like, when, I mean, it reminded me of when you were talking the other day, like you saw that, did you see that tweet Anna Kasperian made? Like, I don't want to be referred to as a birthing person or a person with a uterus or something like that. And just how like this person who, I mean, if you ever watched not when I was a lefty, I watched the young Turks. So I'm very familiar with like Anna Kasparian what, and what years were this and all that. when you were watching the Young Turks? Oh, like 2014 to 20, right. like prime Bernie Sanders era and all that when I was right. still on the left. And since then, I mean, they've just gotten more and more. I mean, Anna's constantly out there calling people bigots and calling people transphobes and all that. But then the minute she deviates from that secular religion just a little bit, and she might as well be being accused of being a witch in Salem 
a yeah. few hundred years ago. Like that's the exact same mentality and it just turned around on her. So it's, I think you're exactly right. I mean, you, at least Christianity and Judaism, and I guess yeah, even Islam, like these are religions that at least like they're tested in known quantities. And at least the dogmas come from something and they aren't just this like, I mean, with the left, and this like woke ideology, it feels like they're just making it up as they go. Like it literally just changes from like one thing to another with whatever the mob seems to, whatever the consensus is on Twitter or TikTok or whatever on any given day. Well, it seems like to me, like the difference say, and by the way, I don't mean to equate all of the big three religions, or I don't know if they're the big three, but three of the big religions, certainly Christianity and Islam are the big two. But right. look, I think that Christianity has can put a feather in its cap that probably no one else can, like with the creation of Western civilization kind of, you know, being right. very closely linked to it. But at least with these other like religions, there is this there there is like a sense of stability. Like okay, these are the parameters that we're setting out. The woke religion is like still figuring itself out and still advancing ever further and ever further. And if you believe the religion according to ten years ago, you're Adolf Hitler. Like I, I mean, like two years ago, you're out. You know what I mean? Like Anna Kasparian went like a year ago, and she's like in big trouble. Ten right. years ago is like you don't believe in gay marriage. Like yo, you you are out. You are literally no different than wanting a genocide babies basically at that point. And so there's just like, you see it and you're like, okay, so this has all, like, I'm not so far removed from my uh, agnostic days that I don't, I acknowledge there are problems with religion. Like I, like I, I very much believe in God, but I can also acknowledge there's problems with religion. Anytime you yeah. institutionalize anything, there are issues that come along with that. But this has all of the problems of religion with none of the stability. <laughs> like It's like, okay, right. so how is that better? Like, what is that? You know what I mean? It's like saying, oh, like, we might be anarchists or something like that and say, okay, well, we think the state is kind of like institutionalized aggression. And so we don't like that. But if we were to compare that to like a violent mob, you'd be like, okay, I'll take the state over that if you had to choose because this violent mob might just drag anyone out of the street and kill them because you have no idea. You know what I'm saying? So like there's, that's almost like the comparison. Even in the worst interpretation of like organized religion, it's like an organized system of rules. Some might be excessively oppressive. Maybe some, you know, like I personally, like I'm a, I believe in God. I have a personal relationship with God. My view, and this might trigger some of your audience, but I don't have a strong belief that the Bible, the Torah, the Old Testament, the New Testament, that any of it is literally the word of God. That I don't, not like, I think these are things that were passed down over thousands of years that were, even if, like, I do still believe that, like, even if they were originally actually the word of God, what we're getting now is probably a little bit of a game of telephone, a little bit of a funhouse mirror. I think that there's tremendous wisdom in a lot of the stories and you can benefit from a lot of them. And that if you try to take the meaning of them, they will bring you closer to God. I do think that there are certainly, let's say, things in the Bible that I go, that can't exactly be right. <laughs> like that can't exactly be what was said. I don't think these rules on how to beat your slave are the correct <laughs> understanding of what like, you know what I mean? Like God's will is. But okay, there might there, there are issues with any of these like organizations. 
But my God, I mean, to think that you're going to like, that, that you're going to build a society around this new religion is, you know, we're finding out in real time how crazy the idea of this is. And I also think that like society needs some type of parameters and particularly for people who are anarchists or libertarians in general, if your belief is that, well, this shouldn't be done through a centralized authority that is institutionalized aggression, well then, okay, and I agree with that. But there has to be some type of like order set by society. There have to be some type of boundaries. There's, we could all recognize, I think almost every libertarian could recognize that just non-aggression is not enough, right? Like that's a good starting point, but you need a little bit more than that. There are still like, have to be to some degree like rules of conduct and rules of how you interact with your fellow man, like, you know, and, and right. So you need something to do that. And since no matter what, you're going to have a religion one way or the other, why not have the tried and tested where it's like with these very basic fundamental moral principles that like, you know, Christianity and Judaism and some of these other religions offer. Yeah. And you're kind of moving into the topic I wanted to move into next, which is that I have this idea in my head. And I mean, it's kind of obvious because I mean, the name of the podcast is biblical anarchy, but I feel like Christianity or even just more broadly speaking, that a sort of biblically based worldview and libertarian anarchism are sort of like traditions that sort of stem from the same source. And like, they're obviously not the same thing. And I'm not trying to conflate them and say like, because obviously there are Christians who aren't anarchists and libertarian anarchists who aren't Christian. But what I mean is that like, what are they at the base level? Like they are both, I think, expressions of like a belief in truth and a sort of objective morality. And I think that both sort of put you at odds with the state. You know, and you talked about this in one of your podcast episodes a few months back. You sort of like laid out that like Christians and religious people in general, but you use Christians as the example there, are often in the way of the state and what they're trying to push on the people because they have a higher authority than the state. (laughs) So they're going to be like, no, I'm not going to just blindly follow Anthony Fauci. I'm not just going to blindly follow what whatever Joe Biden says or whatever my governor says. Now, I wish there was more of this during the lockdowns, but there were many examples of Christians and pastors and even Jews and temples and Muslims and mosques who said like, no, like you, you tell us to stay home and to wear masks and to do all these things. But like God tells us that we're supposed to gather and we're supposed to worship and we're going to do that whether you if you tell us that you're not going to let us, we're going to do it anyway. And so that serves as a sort of like bulwark against sort of like state supremacy, so so to speak. And so, yeah, I think that Christianity and libertarian anarchism are sort of like cut from the same cloth, so to speak. And there's a lot, and I agree, like there's certain things in the Bible that definitely had like a limited cultural element to it. And also important to, and I don't want to get into like a debate over the the Bible, but you know, I'm sure you've probably heard the argument because that's like something Sam Harris would point out. Be like, well, there's things in the Bible about how to beat your slaves, and then I think to like Jordan Peterson saying, yeah, but it's Christians who ended slavery, so like, yeah. you know, you gotta put both of those things on the scales, and you know, it's like obviously there are things in the Bible that led people to eventually 
yes. using Christian justifications to to abolish slavery. And there's something in the Christian tradition that screams against tyranny. And there's so many examples. Like some of my favorite, one of my favorite ones is in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel 8. And the Israelites are crying to the prophet Samuel to ask God to give them a king. They want to be like the other nations and have a king who's going to solve all their problems and fight all their battles. And God tells Samuel to tell them, this king that you want, he's going to take your property. He's going to enslave your children. He's going to make you and your children fight on the front lines of all of his wars. And you're going to be this king's slaves, essentially. And more so than that, you asking for a king is rejecting me as your king. So it's like, there's clearly something there that, you know, and then the history of the monarchy in Israel isn't exactly pretty. It's a lot of kings doing exactly what God warned them that they were going to do. And then you have examples in the New Testament where Jesus goes out in the desert and Satan's trying to tempt him. And he says, I have all the kingdoms of the world, they're mine to give to you. And then Jesus later on and Paul refer to Satan as the ruler of this world and say that the kingdoms of man are essentially satanic in nature. So maybe there are just two quick examples and there's many more, but I think that within the tradition of scriptures, both Old and New Testament, there is just this deep, deeply embedded tradition of that I think a lot of Christians and Jews and people have just like been they've been conditioned to read those things in a certain way because of like we all live like we're all brought up in this statist culture. So we, we don't necessarily immediately see those things popping out or read them as like a, oh, we should view our current state as evil. But I think that there's something there that has that potential and that has that push to keep its guardrails, right? Like, as I think it's been a lot easier for, it's not, not that the predominantly Christian cultures were perfect libertarian paradises, but there were guardrails in place that kept the state from becoming, I think, what we have today. So I don't yeah. know. What do you think about that? The the idea that like there's this relationship between Christianity and the Bible and like libertarian anarchy. Well, there's no. I mean, look. I think there's no question. There's a relationship there. And like, if we're being honest, look, the concept of libertarianism does not exist without Christianity and Christianity's influence on Western civilization. Short of that, there's no, no one even comes up with the, the, these concepts. I mean, like the idea of individual liberty going, uh, go back to the, like the Magna Carta. I mean, go like, there's no beginning to understand the idea of some degree of individual rights. And of course, way through, uh, through the enlightenment period and the classical liberal period, I, this is all completely influenced by Christianity. And so it's not even like, I think that there's like, oh, is there some connection there? There are inextricably like they're linked no matter what anyone wants to say that you can't unlink them and maybe in your mind theoretically you could but in actual reality how these ideas like evolved not to use a trigger word for christians but <laughs> how these ideas like you know how these ideas came into an immaculate conception there's the, this is how it happened and so i think there's definitely a connection there i think that there is something about being a, like a truly religious, like there's something about the force of being religious that the state always wants to grab onto throughout history. And this is true even in, this is one of the most destructive things 
in the Muslim world is that, aside from U.S. foreign policy, is that their like their governments will try to claim that they are the true spokesman for Allah, and then mm. they almost like take away that guardrail and make you completely like subservient to the state. And that is the, the pharaohs in Egypt claimed to be gods. Hitler essentially claimed to be a god. Stalin made you put up a picture of him in your house. Like it was almost like you had to be part of this religion of the state. They don't want a religion separate from the state. And that's what Christianity is in the modern Western world. And that's part of, and it's by far the most dominant religion. And that's part of the reason why it has to be attacked the most. Because if they want you a part of their statist religion, but if you have your own religion and then it is a bulwark against all of this insanity because at least at the very minimum, you believe that there's something higher than the state. You believe that there's something higher, like the guy in a suit named Senator who gets on TV and talks to you is not your ultimate authority. And as soon as that's the case, then it, like if you recognize that he is flawed just like you are, then you're at least starting from a place where you're more willing to question what he has to say. And I would just like, I pose this to anyone, even the most hardcore atheist libertarian. You'd go, would you rather the elected politician, would you rather the president or senators or governors or anything like that, would you rather be they believe that there is a God who believes in right and wrong and that they will be judged by their creator when they die and sentenced to eternity based off how they're judged? Or would you rather they believe that this life is it and whatever they can get away with right now, they got away with? <laughs> yeah. I mean, which one do you think from a libertarian perspective, which one would be superior to you than the other? I think it's pretty obvious what the answer is. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think about things Rothbard and not just Rothbard, but I think primarily of Rothbard in like the anatomy of the state where he in a lot of what he writes in there is this idea that like the state can only sustained its existence through somehow manipulating the majority of the population into either accepting its legitimacy or like its inevitability or like the inevitability of like no matter how society organizes it's going to turn into a state and so like the state this monopoly of force that we libertarians view it as it sort of like exists by perpetrating a lie like it exists by 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 brainwashing by by indoctrinating the population and then it does this in different areas of society it's like you know without the state who would do x whether it's the roads whether it's who would handle criminality but then you look at things like okay well without the state who would protect us from people who would violate our property rights never mind just ignoring the little detail there that the state exists by violating property rights so like it's just we're brought up in this statist culture and we're sort of like indoctrinated to ignore these like really obvious truths. And it's funny because it's like we as libertarians, like we see it so clearly, but like you'll really trigger some people who aren't ready to be woken up to that truth if you try to really press them on that because it's like the state is sort of like the security blanket that they're used to. And you're trying to rip it away from them. You're trying to pull the wool off their eyes. And so when I think of the Bible talking about Satan being the father of all lies, and then you have people like Jesus and Paul and John, or even instances in the Old Testament where it's just talking about 
the evils and the tyranny of the state. And there's just so many examples also of like the state trying to get, even in the Bible, the state trying to obtain worship. I mean, that was like in the book of Daniel, you have two different examples of the first one's Meshach, Radshach, and then Abednego. And then Daniel himself, where the rulers of with Babylon and then Assyria were saying, you will only bow down and worship me. And they just said, nah, <laughs> like, we're not going to do that. You can throw us in a fire. You can throw us into a den of lions, but we're not going to worship you. And, and so I just think that it's really clear to me within the Bible that like the state is an entity that's trying to distort reality and to get you to worship it. And then I read something like Anatomy of the State, and I'm like, man, like Rothbard is like a modern day prophet <laughs> in a way, in sort of the things that he's saying. So that kind of gets me to where so I want to shift this now to what we do about this. So, like, you and I, you know, we're both fathers, we're both parents, and we're also both into this idea of peaceful parenting. And I think introducing this idea to people in the context of understanding that the state exists on a foundation of lies is sort of why I think it's important because part like there's so many different things that go towards perpetuating the monopoly of violence and sort of like the normalization of violence in our society. And I think that we need to, wherever we can, push back against that and take, take away from the state the ease that it has in getting people to accept that as like the status quo. And so if the state exists by subverting truth through propaganda and embedding it in our belief system, then we as parents have, especially like libertarian parents, we need to first and foremost be like raising our children to be able to clearly distinguish between right and wrong and truth and lies. And to, so that way they're not going to be sucked up by propaganda. They're not going to be sucked up by indoctrination. And so that's why when I first heard of peaceful parenting, the, that, that idea was like really intriguing to me. And I know you're a big proponent of it too. And so I wanted to get, I guess, you to talk a little bit about that in terms of like, just like the role of parenting in general and why you think peaceful parenting is important and how you would even define that. Cause I, there's different levels of this and, Sometimes there are some people out there who describe peaceful parenting in a way that I don't agree with because it's like they're just basically saying you know, it's kind of similar to the what you see like in this sort of like gender ideology where it's just like, oh, you can't shape your kids at all. They're just born the way they are. And it's your job to just sit back and just affirm everything they do. And it's like that's that that to me is not peaceful parenting. That's like lazy, passive parenting at best. Or it's like actually like evil manipulative parenting where you're like trying yeah, no, to being like <laughs> derelict in your duty. Right. There's nothing noble about that. I think that like libertarianism might tell you that your uh, obligation in a sense is non-aggression. And, but I think if you want to be a decent person, then your obligations are far greater than that. And if you like believe in, like a free society and these ideas of human liberty, then certainly I think when you have a kid, you have like serious obligations to make sure that they're not brainwashed into this insanity and that you protect them as, as best as possible and that you do your best to produce a child who would actually grow up to be the type of person, since we believe in this because we believe in right and wrong, then you would want to produce the type of kid who will go on to live a good life. 
And I mean good as in like in the highest meaning of the word. Right. I think that even within like libertarian beliefs, children are always kind of an exception to some degree. Like children do not exist with the same rights that adults do in the same sense that adults have rights, right? Children do not have the ability to consent. They do not have the ability to take care of themselves. They do not have the, like, so there's this interesting kind of question, and this is something that a lot of really goofy libertarians get completely wrong, and this is something that a lot of people who want to criticize libertarians think they have a big gotcha when they're like, ah, well, what about kids? You know, like, why well, can't, <laughs> you know, libertarians, age of consent, all this dumb shit that comes up about that. But the interesting thing there, if you really dig into it, is like, okay, so yes, we believe that consenting adults should be allowed to essentially do what they want to do if, as long as they don't infringe on the rights of others. However, we can also accept that children can't consent. And this is something that almost everyone, by the way, this isn't unique to libertarians. They try to kind of pin this on us. But the truth is that almost every political ideology recognizes at least to some degree that there are things adults can consent to that children can't consent to. And that's not, you could be the most hardcore right-winger, hardcore left-winger, down-the-middle centrist, Hillary Clinton supporter, and every one of them would agree that there are certain things that adults can do that kids can't do. And so you've got this kind of like unique situation with children. And from the libertarian perspective, I'd say the relationship between parents and children is an inherently involuntary one. Now, right. okay, it's not wrong because it's involuntary, but it is different than every other relationship you have. Like yes. every other relationship you have is voluntary. Your wife chose hopefully. to marry you. Oh yeah, hopefully. <laughs> right. Your wife chose to marry you. Your friends choose to be friends with you. Me and you are both choosing to do this podcast together. But my daughter didn't choose to be brought into the world. My son didn't choose to be brought into the world. Me and my wife made that decision for them. And so I think it's reasonable to say and they didn't that that carries a certain obligation with it. That, okay, we made this choice. And so now, from the libertarian perspective, or which is the, kind of the moral perspective from, in my view, you go, okay, so what's my obligation now? And I think, in a way, my obligation is to make sure seeing as how I made this choice for them that they didn't get a say in, like I think I am burdened with the obligation to make sure that they would be happy that I made this choice. And when I say that, yeah. I mean like later in life, that they would be happy right. that I made this choice, that they once they are able to consent to it, they would go, hey, dad, really glad you brought me into this world and that you were my dad. Like I, yeah. that's my goal is that at the end of all of this, if they could choose anyone in the world to be their parent or they could choose whether they were born or not born, that they'd go, I would have wanted to be born. I would have wanted you to be my father. And like, I'm, and I feel like that kind of obligation. Now, it's impossible to actually be a decent parent and follow the non-aggression principle to a T with your kids. There yeah. are things that I force my kids to do. <laughs> my daughter is four and a half. She does not have a choice over whether she's going to brush her teeth. Right. She has to do that. Literally, I was telling you before we started the show, she's got strep throat right now, which sucks. That's the worst part of being a parent is when they're sick. But she has to take her amoxicillin. She doesn't have a choice. 
I'm not like allowing her the choice of whether she wants to take the amoxicillin for the strep throat or not. It's like, nope, you're going to take this because it's very dangerous if you don't. Now, you know, I, I suppose like an adult has the right to not take amoxicillin, even if they have strep throat. But my daughter doesn't because she lives under the dictatorship that is her dad. <laughs> and like, right. I'm making this decision for her. But as we all could see, like, I'm making this decision because obviously I, it is most reasonable for me to assume that once she is an adult and can make this decision, she'll go, you know, dad, I think it's probably good that you made me take that amoxicillin and didn't let me develop, like, you know, a worse infection or something like that. So, I, what's been interesting to me and what I, like I personally think I would have been a peaceful parent to some degree, even if I had never become a libertarian, even if I had never discovered Stefan Molyneux, who was the first one who kind of introduced this to me as like a libertarian concept. I don't think I would have hit my kids. I don't think I would have spanked my kids or hit them. That was never like my style or who I was or I don't think who I would have been as a parent. But it made me think about this dynamic a lot more. Where you go like, okay, so I think that like, I'm very aware every time I'm violating the non-aggression principle in a sense with my kids. And like, so that would be an example, forcing her to brush her teeth, forcing her to take her antibiotics. That is me violating the non-aggression principle in a sense. You know what I mean? Now it's not because she's a kid, but in, in a way I am forcing her to do something. And I think that every time I do that, there has to be the highest possible standard of test, which is that I am absolutely doing this for their benefit, not for my own benefit, and in a way that they would themselves agree at some point later in life when they can are capable of consent, that they would agree, yes, that was the right decision. And yes. once you become aware of this, it, I, from my perspective, I think it makes you a much better parent. It makes you a much better person. There's things that are like, I mean, I'm talking about, I'm aware of this to the tiniest degree, constantly, every day when I parent. Like, my boy, he's almost one and a half. And he loves, more than anything, to climb up the stairs. Like, that's just, he just has such a great time. But he's pretty slow, you know? <laughs> and sometimes, you got to just run upstairs and get something, and you got to run back down. And he wants to climb up the stairs every time. Now, for the most part, I let him do it. He does it probably 60 times a day up and down the stairs, you know? But every now and then, something has to happen very quickly. And if he's climbing and I just pick him up and walk up the stairs with him, he gets very upset. And I'm in that moment, I'm very aware that I'm grabbing him against his will and picking him up to walk up the stairs. And so that doesn't mean I just have to sit there and like, oh, this is going to take forever. If there's an, like a thing that has to happen, I can't go get... But what I because I'm aware of that, what I start doing is you kind of like... This maybe like sound like a stupid example, but it actually means a lot to me. But so I'll grab him and we'll do this like... We do the rocket ship game where I go, and we skip up five stairs, and then skip up five more stairs, and then skip up five. And he likes that, because he thinks that's really fun. And so I just feel like I have the obligation, if I'm going to do that, to turn that into something fun for him, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah. I have to do it in the best way possible that he actually doesn't object to what I'm doing. 
Now, that doesn't mean there aren't boundaries I can set. That doesn't mean that I'm never going to like initiate force because there's no way not to do that. But in the same sense, whereas like there are, once you start kind of like, and this was Stefan Molyneux's great insight on all of this as far as I'm concerned. Once you start taking certain things off the table and then recognizing certain things for what they are, it leads to all of this other creativity. Yes. And you go, okay, no, it's not an option that I just do something aggressively that makes them miserable. It's not an option that I just scream at my kids or I just spank my kids or I just force my kids to do this. Now, since I've taken that off the table, I have to get creative with this. And now I have all of these other options. I think the old example Stefan Molyneux used to use was when he would say like, you know, um, he goes, you know, you're sitting around the kitchen table and you're like, you know, we're really falling into debt. And we're spending more money than we're making in. Like a husband and wife are talking about that. And they go, okay, well, how about we sell the kids into slavery? That could make us some money. And you go like, okay, like, like maybe that could make you some money. But I think we'd all agree like, no, for moral reasons, that option is off the table. So now that that's off the table, let's talk about what we could cut down on, how we could make more money, what our other options are. And so once you kind of take like brute force off the table you realize that there's a lot more options out there for you. And I think that, like I could give a hundred more examples of little things like that silly walking up the stairs thing, but I'm telling you, this is in my day-to-day life all the time, that I always want to go like, let me always make sure that I'm not imposing my will on my kids in, in a tyrannical manner unless it's absolutely necessary. Like the highest possible test. Now, if it's absolutely necessary, I will, you know? If my kid's running toward oncoming traffic, I will snatch him and grab him out of the way. But it's because this is absolutely necessary to do. And so I think that like, if we really do want to make a difference in the future and we really do want to like, live in a more peaceful, less violent world, there's nothing better we could do than to try to raise our kids as lovingly and as peacefully as possible while still doing right by them. So I think to go back to what you said at the beginning, I think just going like, oh no, anything you want goes and I'm not giving you any direction. I don't think that would be doing right by them. I don't think that's what they would be grateful for later in life. And so that's not the answer, but the answer is to do what's right for them, to guide them in the direct, in the correct direction with the most minimal, tyrannical means possible. And so that's kind of like what you're always shooting towards. Now, like everyone else, I fall short of that at times. I'm not perfect, but I think that you should at least that should at least be your goal. Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, and what I think what it is at the end of the day is to compare this to sort of like libertarian ideas and Christian ideas at the same time is like what you're doing is like modeling for your children, and so by modeling, you're teaching them what legitimate authority looks like and how to wield legitimate authority because it's like we're not against the idea of voluntary authority as libertarian anarchists we just think that authority should be something that is earned and something that like is earned because like you're providing the best service for people and so you provided such value to the people around you that they push you up that sort of like hierarchy of authority or competence or whatever and and that translates to what you're talking about in the model of peaceful parenting which is that you're trying to we're trying to show our children that yes that we have authority over you but 
even though we could use this authority in this tyrannical way, rather we're using it in a way that we're trying to serve you and we're trying to like one of the things that Stefan Molyneux talked about and something that that I've tried to do a lot as well is like if you now you can't do this with like a one year old, but like you can probably start doing this now with like your four and a half year old and as you as they get older you can do more of this is instead of like dragging your kids along with everything they have to do, making them part of the kind of like negotiate like a negotiating and planning like what's going to happen. And it's, it's similar to, to what you said with the steps. You're like, listen, you have to go up the steps. But instead of me just saying like barking at you, like you have to go up the steps, you're making it fun for him. Yeah. And so like, I do that with my oldest who is eight a lot. It's like, I'll be like, we have to go to the grocery store and run some errands. And he doesn't like that because it's just boring for him. And it's like, okay, well, rather than me just be like, well, you're going and that's that. And then we're having a bad time together. I go, okay, I want us to have a good time together. I want you to to listen because you want to listen, not just because I'm making you. So is there a way that we can get to the car and we can go out and do all these errands and have it be something that you're getting some value out of this as well? And so like that's teaching kids libertarian principles right there, which is that like if you want someone to do something, you have to provide some sort of value to them yeah. to entice them to do it. And now obviously as you said, like there are exceptions to this when you're a parent raising your child that doesn't work all of the time. There are times where like, it's like, no, you have to take the amoxicillin. You have to brush your teeth. Like, and you've tried all those other ways first and they just don't work. But the point is just instead of using, I guess like the, for lack of a better term, the tyrannical force as like option a say, I'm not going to do that unless I've exhausted all other options yeah. first. And not only does I think I think that raises kids to be more intelligent, it raises them to be to be more respectful, to be honest. Because like now my eight year old, like I'm not saying I mean he's eight, like occasionally he'll cock an attitude when we have to do something. But for the most part, when we talk about things and I ask him to do something, he's already in that mindset because like I've kind of modeled that for him. Instead of fighting me, he's like, Okay, we're gonna go do this, but you know, while we're doing this, can we do this late? Like he's trying to find ways to cooperate with me and and do so in a way that like I am giving him in a sense some agency. But I'm also not just like completely like either just it's not a false there's a false dichotomy sometimes pushed where it's like you're either like brute forcing everything with your children to happen or you're just like an uninvolved parent who doesn't do anything. And yeah. I think the kind of model that you're describing and I'm describing is not only a better way to raise kids to just be more intelligent, well-rounded individuals, but again, I think it's as they get older, I mean, not even that much older, like my son is already like, I mean, this is partly because I homeschool him and I hope, and I started homeschooling him during the COVID lockdowns. And so he's just like observing the world around him, but he's observing the world around him because of sort of like, yes, my worldview comes out in what he's doing, but he also recognizes like, oh, mom and dad, yeah, they make us do stuff sometimes, but for the most part, they try to talk to us about things and try to keep us involved and they don't like threaten to hurt us or anything. Whereas the government is threatening to hurt people if they don't stay in their homes or if they don't put these masks on or things like that. So like it already like for 
someone even just as young as my eight-year-old like it's already kind of like he notices these things and he's not as easily fooled by like oh just because the government said x that means x is right yeah well i mean it's like once if you establish early on in a kid's life that might makes right and tyrannical authority means you're right then they're gonna kind of see that as normal in the world and if you establish more that like, no, like that's not it. You're supposed to be an equal partner in this to the degree that you can possibly be one. And you're constantly trying to kind of like guide them along to that. Then when they see a tyrannical authority, I think they're more likely to be like, wait a minute, this is wrong. This is not what it's supposed to be. And I think like I agree with a lot of what you said there. And I think that it's not that you're always going to be perfect, but that once you recognize that that burden is on you, to try to exhaust every other option, then you're going to be much better than you otherwise would have been. And so like, that's kind of what it's about. And I'll tell you, even with my daughter, who's only four, it's, there's little things, tiny things. If you're just like, Hey, we have to go do this. You're going to get some resistance. But if you go, Hey, I really need your help. She's much more likely to want to do it like you. And then the more you have this in your mind, you're constantly doing these things that make the kid more involved, make them want to be a part of this. You know, children are the, they're the most magical freaking thing in the world, man. And it's just like having kids, especially having little kids is just the greatest thing you'll ever do. There's nothing better than it. It's, I can't explain how much it just, it drives me crazy and deeply saddens me. When that it's so popular in our culture to kind of like denigrate having kids and you're like, man, you just don't even get it. Like you don't even get it. It's just amazing. I don't mean to cut you off, but like when I was at work the other week, I was like, I walked in, I just heard two coworkers talk about like their kids and just like, yeah. And so I just freaking beat him. And I, you know, and you're like, yeah, it's what you do with kids. You just got to beat them. They're just like these awful. And I was just like listening to them and I was just like getting angry. Like, how can you? say like how can you have kids and think that way like yeah. I, I i almost got into like I, and i tried to like just keep my head down at work and stuff and not cause issues but i was just like well and then the other you and have- then the other thing that drives me fucking crazy is there'll be videos of some teenager committing some heinous crime or just being an awful kid you know some 17 year old dude like beating up someone or something and they're like that's why he needed a dad to whoop his ass or blah blah oh, blah gosh. and you're like yeah, yeah that's the problem i'm sure that this kid didn't see enough violence in his life right yeah that's right. that's really the problem is he had crazy attentive peaceful parents that's really that's your issue right. and then people almost like <laughs> confuse like the peaceful parenting with neglectful parenting which is like okay yeah that's like i don't know it's just so insane but, but that's what the state does, Dave. Like, it's like the state is a violent parent towards all of us. And they're yeah. like, man, we keep on throwing all these people who are using and selling drugs in jail. And we keep on cracking down with more law enforcement. And man, these cities keep getting more violent. Man, what what's going right. on? It's like, right. <laughs> it's the same well, thing. Yeah, it's like, it's like kid, little kids are like, they have this unbelievable, like, like this beauty in them, this innocence yeah. and this passion. Like they wake up every day excited about the world. They just want to understand the world and they want to participate in the world. You see this, it's so intense. It's unbelievable. I mean, like with my four-year-old, like my one-year-old is, you know, he's he's not quite there yet, although he is kind of, but like with a four-year-old, it's like they just 
oh my God, they want to know everything. They want to ask you yeah. all types of questions and try, they're constantly, they're so passionate about trying to understand what's going on. And they so much desire to participate in the adult world. You give them a little, like they want a little task that you'll give them so that they can, you know, it's like, it means so much to my daughter if my wife's baking muffins and she stirs the pot and then can say, yeah. I helped. I help right. to make the muffins. Like it means so much to her. And there's so many ways that you can like engage with that energy and then channel it in a positive direction where it doesn't have to be this constant like butting heads and this constant fighting. You can jujitsu that shit and like move it in a positive direction. And again, I also think that like for me, a lot of this stuff comes very natural. And I know that there's other people who it's not, it doesn't come as natural to them. I've talked to other people who are parents who are like not, it's more of a, they weren't so naturally into being parents. But it's really just so important that your kids know that like every time you see them, every time, I don't care if they just walked into the other room and walked back into the room, that you're so thrilled that they're back in the room with you. Like that you're so thrilled by their presence in your life and that you're so happy to have them in your life. And it's so important that they know that, and not just know in a way like you say this, know in a way that they know you mean this, that you want what's best for them always. And not just like in some abstract way, like I hope everything works out for you, but like in the most immediate sense, like in a very minimal like issue in the day where there's a confrontation of some sort, that what you care about is more that like things are good for them than for yourself. And if you can really like instill that in your kid, you end up producing just a much better person, a much better person than you otherwise would have. And man, this is one of the things that also gets me so like crazy about, you know, it's true for even like some of like the kind of like the like, kind of woke libertarians, but really just like more about like our, our society in general is that, okay, look, we could say that you don't strictly speaking from a libertarian point of view have any obligation other than non-aggression, right? But at the same time, just as human beings, we could recognize that there's more to life than that. There's more to life than just like you can't like stab or rape people, you know, like there's, there's a little bit more than that. And the truth is that we're all here because someone else brought us into this world. And we have everything we have because other people have worked. This is like one of the things that's so, to tie this all into libertarianism and stuff, like one of the things that's so ridiculous about like socialists and proponents of government welfareism in general, you know, proponents of like uh, universal basic income or something like that. It's like, we already have so much of that from the marketplace. Like there's so much that we benefit from that we did not produce that was just gifted to us by other people. And like, I don't mean that like, okay, so like, yeah, I bought these cameras and this equipment and stuff and like, yeah, okay. But I don't know. I didn't invent the language of English and I didn't invent any of this technology. And I didn't like, there's so much stuff just like, the electricity and the heat, the insulation, you know, like so much of the things around us that we just benefit from the fact that generations of men and women worked their fingers to the bone consciously so that the next generation could have a better shot at things. 
like consciously, mm. like, you know, went through backbreaking labor so that the next generation could have something a little bit better than them. And so if you sit here in this position, you go, the only reason I exist is because someone else had a baby. And the only reason I have all of these luxuries around me is because so many generations before me worked their asses off thinking about what's better for the next generation. Then wouldn't it be reasonable to say that I also kind of have an obligation to like pass something on to the next generation, that there's some type of like moral obligation on me to say, well, let me at least try to take where I started from and move it up at least a centimeter and give it to the next generation. And I just, I think that if you parent with that attitude, that you're the one with the obligation, and at every turn, your job is to like make a better person, be the best example for them, and try to like, what better could you really do for the world than like, pu like push another really good person into it? I doubt there's anything, if you ask me. And also, just yeah. it's the most it's the most rewarding thing. It's the best thing. I mean, like, I have like, I have a lot of stuff that I'm really grateful for in my life. I'm very, very lucky in a lot of ways. And I worked hard for what I had, but I'm also very, very fortunate. Like there's a lot of things that things could have happened to me outside of my control that have, could have ruined a lot of things. And I love my career. I don't just have like a job. I have like a career that I love. I love what I do. I love doing stand-up comedy. I love podcasting. I love talking. I love talking about politics. I love cracking jokes with my comedian friends. I love doing stand-up comedy. That's what I do for a living, and I make a very good living off of it. Like, I'm, I'm in a great spot. I don't... Most people will not have a career that gives them as much joy and meaning as my career has given me. And that means nothing compared to what my family means. It's just nothing. Like, it's just... It's so... It's not even close. It doesn't even come close to register. So for most people, it's like you're never going to find the joy and the meaning and the fulfillment that you find from having a family. And like, if you have kids, it's like these, those years, you know, I mean, I know I got little kids and stuff, but already it's gone by fast. It's not that long. It's not that long a period of your life that your kids are your kids and that they're little kids. And even then they're just like bigger kids. 10, 15 years isn't that long. By the time you got a 15-year-old, you know, I mean, you still have a kid, but it's not a little kid anymore. And like, so wouldn't you at least like, man, invest in that time, invest in that time and really do the absolute best job you can. I remember my high school basketball coach, Coach McMahon, who was a huge influence on me. He was the best coach I ever had in my life. I was a big basketball player when I was a kid. He was the best coach I ever had. And I remember he said, he used to say all these things that really stuck with me. But it, at one point, he was like, hey, you know that guy, the player who's just outworking everybody else, who's hustling more than everybody else, who if there's a loose ball, he's diving on that loose ball. The guy who's just like doing everything he can. You know that player? Like we all know that player. And he goes, why would you ever not want to be that player? Why would you ever not want to be the guy who's giving everything he has to it? And that's, and man, basketball is so unimportant compared to raising your kids. It's like, why would you just not want to be the father or the mother who's just giving everything they can, just trying to be the absolute best? 
Now I'm far from perfect. I'm not trying to like preach like I'm the, the best, but I will say that I wake up every morning trying to be the best father and trying to be the best husband. I try. I fail a lot, but I do wake up every day trying. Yeah. No, and I think that is the most important thing we can do as parents and as libertarians too. And it's like if we want, I feel this strong conviction and this sort of is a tough balance to to try to strike because it's like I I want to spend almost every waking moment with my children but and my, my wife, but obviously like, okay, well, I got to go make money and provide. Otherwise, the lights, if I don't make the money, the lights stop going on and the food stops showing up in the uh, the pantry and the fridge and all that. So I've got to go spend some time making money. But then beyond that, it's like, okay, why do I put time into podcasting? Why do I put time into the Libertarian Party? Why do I put time into trying to advocate for a free society? It's like, because I want my children to have better than me. You know what I mean? Or at least, or at the very least, stave off the possibility of them having even worse than I have. Because even as bad as things are right now, like I can look to so many things going on in the world from my childhood to right now, and still, like, it's better than what, like, my great great grandparents probably grew up in in many ways. And so there's a lot of things that, that I'll be careful. I'm I've learned, I learned on Twitter today, you have to say, in all ways, in all ways, it's <laughs> <No>. better. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> yeah, I was reading that actually a couple hours ago. But yeah, so things are bad. But the, my point is being like, they could be so much worse. And in some places in the world, they are so much worse. And so it's like, I want to, I struggle to find that balance between wanting to spend time with my family, wanting my kids to know me and to have a relationship with me and to instill in them the values that will make them strong and ready to be in the world, but also being like, okay, but I also like, they can't go out and fight these battles right now. I have to go out there and fight these battles right now. So hopefully they don't have to, or at least if they have to, yeah. they're not like starting from scratch. Like they, well, they, yeah, they've inherited I, a, go, go ahead. Well, yeah. I, okay. So there's, look, when, whenever you're trying to find a balance in a very complex system, you almost have to start by going, all right, I'm never going to get this perfect. But you have to try your best to find that balance. Like, and so a lot of times there'll be, you know, I'm, I'm gone. I mean, I'm not gone probably as much as a dad who just works a nine to five job. But I travel and I, I'll be gone for a weekend here or there. I'll be gone for different like events and comedy shows and speaking gigs and stuff like that that I do. And I always constantly have that struggle. And my, I always try to justify it where it's like, okay, I'm going and I'm doing this for this reason, or I'm making this money, or I'm doing whatever. And like sometimes I know there's been people who have invited me to things and then they're like, oh, but don't have like much of a budget and I don't go do it. And they're kind of like, oh, Dave won't come do this unless we're like paying him. And you're like, well, you got to understand. So I'm like, I'm working on like trying to like figure out this balance of what it's like for me to be away from my wife and kids it needs to be justified by like i'm supporting my wife and kids by doing this it's a very it's a complex yes. system that you have to work out but one of the factors in there short of even like whether you're changing the world or not is that and i've i i've noticed this a lot more i've thought about this a lot more since i had my son maybe this is part of my own sexism or whatever but having a son made me think about this a lot more than even having my daughter 
where it's like, there's also some value in me demonstrating to my son that I stand up for what I believe in. Right. And like that in itself, even if it doesn't change anything, like in the greater world, that in itself is a lesson that needs to be instilled into him from me. That like, no, like if I believe in something, I will stand up and say that. There's something very powerful about that. You know what I mean? Like that, like uh, um, that value or that ethic and instilling in him. Like that means a lot to me. So there's a lot of different factors, you know? And so what you have to do, in, in my opinion, you have to first accept that you're never going to get the balance exactly perfect. You have to strive toward as close to perfect as you can. There's probably something like some Christian ethic in that, by the way, you know, understanding that yeah. you're never going to be, right? You're never going to be completely <laughs> without sin, but your job is to always be striving to be as without sin as is possible. Um, yeah. And so, right. So you don't like beat yourself up for not being perfect, but you also don't ever accept that you can just go, Hey, I'm not perfect. I can sin as much as I want to. Right. Right. (laughs) So there's, there's something, I think that's a very Christian kind of way of looking at the world, but that I go like, well, look, I have to always make sure that I'm spending a ton of quality time with my wife and kids. And also, by the way, they're all one. Like, it's not like, your relationship with your wife and then your relationship with your kids, it's all one thing. It's like your family because your yeah. relationship with your wife is there's no way that that's not going to be felt by your kids also. And me spending quality yeah. time with my wife and then make, you know what I mean? Like is always, first off, a lot of it's going to be in front of my kids and they're going to actually see that. And then second off, if I'm not spending quality time with my wife and we're not like protecting our relationship, they will feel that in one way or the other. You know what I mean? So like yeah. it's, it's all of these, it's one like singular unit. And so if, as long as I'm making sure I'm, I'm getting like a ton of quality time in with them and then I'm doing everything I can to like financially provide for them. And then I also have to like, like do what I think is right in a lot of situations. Like, because that's another ethic that I have to instill in them is that they see like their father, like really believing in what he believes in. And like doing what he believes is the right thing. So there's all of these different dynamics, and all the, like all of that is very important. It's a very it's a very like complex system, but that's our job. That's our job as men is to figure it out to the best of our ability. Yeah, no, and I think that part of that and the peaceful parenting is a is a useful element in there as well because it does a lot of the, you know, like we where I feel like all the different things we do outward facing. I agree. They they have, whether they make a difference or not, they model for our kids standing up for what you believe in. I am a little bit white pilled that we can make a difference in the medium to short term, but even though it, but it's like, are we going to, you know, what was the old, uh, the, the old guard saying like liberty in our lifetime? Like, you know, I mean like, no, like we're not, we're so far off. Like I believe we can move the needle, but we're, we're not like, there's so much, authoritarianism and so much tyranny like it's 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 not there's no way in my lifetime we're gonna have that but what will make a difference is if everyone who believes in liberty raises their kids not just it's not about not even about raising your kids to believe in liberty it's about giving them a mindset that understands like i said earlier what true authority is and i think that's an incredibly important part of libertarianism and Christianity that relates to how we parent our kids, which is like, if you model for them what true authority is, I mean, like in a a Christian sense, I'll I'll, I'll also point to like, if if we model the example that Christ gave in terms of displaying what 
true authority is, what true leadership is, which wasn't to be tyrannical with your authority and power, but rather to be a servant, which is, I think, mirrors what what libertarianism talks about, what free market capitalism talks about. You know, if we model that for our kids, then when they, we have a generation of people raised with that being normalized to them, then just we're impacting the culture in a way that that I think will have a, if there's ever going to be a society that really evolves past statism, it's going to be because it's a generation that was raised to evolve past statism because they, 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 they were raised with it instilled in them an understanding of what true authority was and what true justice and what true morality looks like. And they look at the state and they go like, you know what? We're beyond that. We're going to go, you know, we're going to go build something else and we're, we're, we're not going to recognize the illegitimate authority of these institutions. Yeah. Yeah, And look, I mean, if you, even short of being like a perfectly free anarcho-capitalist society or anything like that, if we just want to be a better society, if we just want yeah. to be a more good society, we're going to need more good people. And I, I tell you, I'm, I, I know for a fact, I'm already giving my kids a much better upbringing than I had. And that, you know, like, then I feel like, okay, more than anything else that I do, I don't care if like I'm, you know, I have a clip on Rogan that 30 million people see or something like that. Much more than anything I could do with that, I'm doing something where I'm like putting a few kids into the world who were raised better than I was raised. And, you know, if you see so many of the problems of today's society, it's, it's easy to say like, oh, what difference does one parent make or what difference does just what you do in your life makes? But also I'd caution people against underestimating that. And yeah. A lot of those, you know, if you see whatever you see, like you see somebody who's like a hardcore like war hawk or you see like one of these people who's like a crazy like trans, you know, like activist or something. You're like, what was this person's childhood really like? You know, I doubt they had parents who were talking about parenting the way me and you are right now. I really highly doubt that. And I doubt that anyone there's no gangbanger who had parents who were talking the way we're talking right now. That doesn't exist. There's not one in the history of gangbangers. There's not one. You know what I mean? And so like, it's like there really is something powerful about that. And okay, yeah, we're not going to get everybody to do this, but the more we can, the more power we have. And I agree with you. I'm also very white-pilled. I'm very white-pilled on like our ability to, it's like, it's a thing Jordan Peterson always says, which is like, just you getting your life together can have this crazy ripple effect where it's like better for everybody else around you. And then like now when we have the ability to do this and kind of like speak to bigger and bigger groups of people, people out there who do like a podcast and maybe there's like a hundred people who listen to your show. You don't have a very big show at all. You got a hundred people who listen to your show. That's like a hundred people, you know, that's kind of cool. That's kind of cool that you can communicate with a hundred people and they can hear your voice. Maybe once a week you do a show and a hundred people listen. That's something, you know what I mean? That's more than Murray Rothbard had like in his fucking prime. He had like 12 people in his living room and like, okay, he was smarter than you, but whatever. That's not, you know, that's not necessarily the point. And uh, I don't know. I'm very white belt despite how crazy things are. And I will say, you know, by the way, cause I just alluded to it before. If people don't know, I got on a Twitter thing today where I was saying that like, you know, basically I was saying in many ways, 
We're better off than we were in the past. But in many ways, our grandparents were freer than we are today. And this triggered a whole bunch of the Lulberts to be like, what do you mean? The past is just racist and sexist. And I mean, I'm, I'm caricaturing a little bit, but not even really that much. That's not basically really. what I said <laughs> and what they were responding yeah. to. But the truth is that even as I'm saying this, like, yes, it, the, the fact is that in many ways, our grandparents were freer than we are today. And the size of the state has grown bigger and bigger and bigger. And there's like, you know, a lot of problems. And certainly we're less stable as a society than we've ever been or close to it. But I still wouldn't choose to live in any other time rather than today, or at least before today, if I could. You know, I've, if I lived in, any, if I had my life in any other time in the past, my son would have died. Is only alive because of like modern medicine. And, like, you know, right. my, that for people who don't know, my son had open heart surgery when he was three days old. You know, if I, if I had lived 30 years ago, my son would, would have died. So I'll take the time when my son lives over any other time yeah. in human history, no matter what the other problems are. I'll take the one where my, where my boy makes it. And so, yeah, like there's so many things around you to be optimistic about. Pessimism and cynicism are the most worthless, you know, they're right up there with feeling sorry for yourself. They're the most worthless emotions to have. Yeah, sure, they might be justified sometimes, but what the hell do they accomplish? Nothing. Right. We got a ton to be optimistic about. Right. And there's a certain optimism to just, you know, and again, you brought up Jordan Peterson. This is something he talks about too, which is just like, you know what? Take responsibility for your own suffering and your own hardships. Like, yes, there are systemic problems, but you know what? How are you going to fix this? I was actually, it's funny. I was having a conversation with a friend earlier and he's like, how do we fix systemic problems if not by trying to affect systemic change? It's like, I don't, I don't think that, you know, is really how we fix systemic problems. I think you have to fix systemic problems from the ground up, like in the way you were, you know, echoing Jordan Peterson's lectures where it's like, you start by setting your house in order, then you set you know, the house of your, you try to get your community in order. And if everyone's doing that in their own spheres of influence and, and power, that is what sets the world in order. And that's what really creates systemic change. Yeah. I think. Yeah. I'd say like, I always go like this, like if you, okay, particularly if you have a wife and kids or a husband and kids, then the first thing you do, right. Is you really, do your absolute best to be good to them. And I don't mean like in some grandiose level. I mean, day to day, like the little things. Like you make sure to like, you know, if your wife's really pissed off that you're not like taking the trash out and fixing the hole in the stairs, go do that. Like whatever the thing is, the little thing is, you know what I mean? Really focus, trying to do that. And, and don't, don't make your issues like this monster. You know, a lot of people have this tendency to kind of like, if you go like, well, what's wrong with my life? What do I need to fix? And you take on the biggest issue right away, you know, like whatever it'll be. It's like, I don't know. I can't think of a good example, but it's just like, I'm out of shape and I need to run a marathon, you know, or something like that. Yeah. And so the first day you get up, I'm training for a marathon and then you fail and then you feel like shit, and then you go, oh, it sucks. I can't do it. Not that. It's like, if you're out of shape, bang out 10 push-ups tomorrow morning. 
Do something. Start small. Something really achievable and then do that and then try to move from that to 15 to 20. Push it. You know what I mean? Like try something really small. Now, if you have a wife and kids, a husband and kids, you start by really trying to be good. What can I do to make them all a little bit happier tomorrow? What can I do to serve them a little bit more than I have been? If you don't have a, a wife or a husband or kids, if you have a girlfriend or a boyfriend, then do it with them. If you don't have any of that, okay, fine. But what you want to do is you want to ask yourself, and this, this is a Jordan Peterson thing too, right? You ask yourself, what could I do to like, and, and really in a very genuine sense, like sit down and ask yourself, what can I do to improve my life? What can I do to be a better person? And one of the things, and this is very, to me, very intimately related to God, is that when you start doing things like this, there is no chance, there is 0% chance, right? That if you do that, something won't float into your mind. I, I say every mm. single person who's listening to this, myself included, if you just sit there in a very honest way and go, what could I be doing better in life? Really meditate on that for a second. Things are going to, right away, things are going to pop, start popping up like this, 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 because we all could be doing a lot better on a lot of things. Of all those things, pick the lowest hanging fruit the easiest thing, not the hardest thing. Pick the easiest thing and try to take on that. And then next, take on the next easiest thing and the next easiest thing. If you do that for six months, a long time, but just commit for six months, I'm going to do, I'm going to be good. To, I'm going to be really, really good to everyone around me as best as I can. And I'm going to pick off the low hanging fruit of things I could be doing better in my life. Do that and get back to me. Right. And tell me, and now you're not going to change the world. The Federal Reserve will not be ended by the end of that. <laughs> but you, I guarantee, you will be in a drastically better place in your life than you are today. And if you don't believe me, prove me wrong. There's my six-month challenge. Go do it. And I, I guarantee none of you could take me up on that challenge and in six months look me in the eyes and say, yeah, things aren't way better off than they are today. Yeah. No, I 100% agree. And I think, you know what? Like, we, we, we love to chant end the Fed. But you know what? Like, that is like in the libertarian sense, like, that's like taking on the hardest challenge first. Yeah. We're probably not going to end the Fed. But you know what we can do? We can maybe work to pass like a Second Amendment sanctuary in our in our town, or we can work to, to do drug decriminalization or criminal justice reform thing, like like or defend the guard has started to pick up steam in different states. Like we can take on those little things that are more local and community based, and then we can just be better people to our friends, be better people in our community, be and then at most important of all, be the best parents, the best uh, spouses that we can be. And I think, yeah, all these things are just, you know, they, they might seem little, but I think they have a, a much more profound effect than people sometimes give credit for. And I think that also when we undersell those things, when we, we don't take the time to really appreciate the profound effect that those little things have, I mean, we're all we're doing is giving into that sort of despair and sort of like, apathy because like some people just think well it's just it's too hard how are we going to do anything and they give into that apathy and it's like but that's that's just where the state wants you 
<laughs> they want you to think that it's too hard. But like it, it, it I'm not saying it's it I'm not saying it's not a huge challenge, but I don't know. I feel like, you know, I feel like you and I are on the same page. They're like, you know, like it is a big challenge, but you know what? I'm gonna do the best with what I have where I can do it, and I'm gonna encourage everyone else to do the same. And I'm gonna believe that, you know, uh the the what is it what is the saying? Like the uh the the needle of history bends towards justice or something like that. Like I'm going to believe that things are going to get better and not worse. Yeah, in the yeah. Long run. Well, I think I think that's the right that's the right attitude to have. And I think that you like you keep. It's not that you don't. It's not that you stop shooting for like the the most important thing, but you do that while also like trying to move one inch in the right direction. And so like it's like yeah. okay. You set your trajectory toward like the ultimate good, and then you you're happy with any direction that you move in that direction, or any any progress that you you attain toward that direction. Yep, I agree. Well, Dave, hour and a half has already flown by real quickly. I really appreciate you coming on, taking the time to talk to me about all these different topics, uh, and for my listeners to hear it. Give any closing thoughts that you have, and then if you want to give any plugs promote any upcoming events that you have uh this is going to air uh next week which would be this will be airing on my calendar pops up here the 5th of april so i know by the time this airs it'll already happen but i'll be seeing you in a couple days at the uh take human action oh you're coming uh, out to that new york yeah so so if you but uh if you are watching this and you've missed that Make sure you go attend the other ones because there's a lot of great speakers uh, showing up to that event. I just had Mike on last week to talk about it. But yeah, any closing thoughts and any uh, any plugs that you want to give? Well, I very much enjoyed this conversation, Jacob, as I always do. Uh, enjoy talking to you. Um, so that this was uh, this was great. Yeah, no, I don't. Not really any closing thoughts. I uh, I think I said everything. I uh, <laughs> everything on the topic I, I could think of at the moment. And and in terms of plugs, uh, you know, every, you know where to find part of the problem. Problem is my podcast and comicdavismith.com is my website. But yeah, I really enjoyed it, Jacob. Thanks so much for having me. Cool. Thanks, Dave. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And we'll be back next week with more content. And so I hope to see you then. The Biblical Anarchy Podcast is a part of the Christians for Liberty Network, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. If you love this podcast, it helps us reach more with a message of freedom when you rate and review us on your favorite podcast apps and share with others. If you want to support the production of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, please consider donating to the Libertarian Christian Institute at biblicalanarchypodcast.com, where you can also sign up to receive special announcements and resources related to biblical anarchy. Thanks for tuning in.